Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Adding new blood might give Donald Trump what he needs to break with traditional U.S. foreign policy. We'll think through Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. The French president wants the U.S. to stick with the Iran nuclear deal. We'll discuss President Trump's latest tirade against Iran. And we learn about the effort to create an international convention for crimes against humanity. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Mike Pompeo's nomination as Secretary of State made it out of the Foreign Affairs Committee last night after Rand Paul changed his mind and voted for him. Votes on Secretary of State usually aren't even close, but in the Trump administration, things are different. Let's talk about where our foreign policy is going with Uri Friedman. He's from The Atlantic. His latest article is Mike Pompeo's Secret Visit Shows Trump Wants to Go Big on North Korea. Thanks a lot for joining me, Uri. Good to be with you. Uh, Where do you think we are with U.S. foreign policy and the Trump administration? He's feeling uh, a little friskier with this John Bolton appointment and the Mike Pompeo nomination here. He's got more latitude to do what he wants with people he has um, better feelings about. Yes, I I agree. I think we are seeing a a potentially different uh, Donald Trump foreign policy in the second year of his administration than in his first year. In the first year, one of the most remarkable things is that his policies were a lot less dramatic than his rhetoric and even than the president himself has expressed his desires to be. So, uh, you know, he's talked about wanting to rip up the Iran deal. Well, the Iran deal wasn't ripped up. But now we are approaching a deadline in May when Donald Trump may very well uh, withdraw the United States from the Iran deal. Um, And it goes beyond that. I mean, I think Donald Trump has always said that he... You know, he he's kind of gone in two different directions on North Korea, but really dramatic directions. One is threatening war, and the other one is saying, I, "I'd meet with Kim Jong Un. I can strike a deal with him." And now we are actually seeing something remarkable, which is an American president preparing in the coming weeks to meet with Kim Jong Un and try to get in a room with him and make a deal that has eluded, um, you know, U.S. administrations for twenty five years. So I I, th- I think he is feeling more comfortable in the job, and also from the staffing perspective, he has found people in Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, who don't necessarily see eye-to-eye completely with the president in terms of ideology, but who do seem to be very, um, you know, enthusiastic defenders of the president's policies. They may argue it out in meetings in private, but once Trump makes his decision, they're going to be out on cable and, you know, briefing reporters, really enthusiastically defending those decisions. I think that's what he's looking for. He's not looking for checks in the way that Rex Tillerson, the former Secretary of State, was, or in some ways in the way H.R. McMaster, his former National Security Advisor, was. Mike Pompeo, in his testimony to Congress, seemed to be a little more fond of the Iran nuclear deal than he was when he was a congressman. Is um, was, What was happening there? Is he presenting a... Um, 
uh, a, kind of a false Mike Pompeo to to Congress for to get approved because he thinks Congress wants to see a Secretary of State that is a check on Donald Trump. I think there are two things going on. One, when you're in that, uh, you know, a confirmation hearing, what you're trying to do is get the people on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to vote for you, right? And so you you are trying to placate them, you know, address their concerns about your nomination. And for many Democrats and even some Republicans, uh, the idea of withdrawing from the Iran deal is very makes them very nervous. And I think Mike Pompeo knew that his record in Congress was one of fiercely opposing the Iran deal, and that this would be a concern for many of the senators who, you know, held in the balance his nomination. I think that's one factor. But I think a second factor is things are a little different when you're not in Congress and you're not um, just expressing opposition with no real power over U.S. policy in a in a very um, a big sense the way you are when you're in the executive branch. Uh, certainly, Congress has a role in playing policy, but you know Mike Pompeo was one of many uh, congressmen. He was not playing a pivotal role in the making of the Iran deal. And so I think things look a little different when you're a CIA director, which he is currently, and you see that Iran, one, is complying with all the technical terms of the deal. And secondly, when you contemplate what it would mean if you withdraw from the deal and Iran restarts its nuclear program, just as North Korea uh, is advancing very rapidly on its nuclear program, and you have two nuclear crisis. At once, I think I think that is a real challenge for the Trump administration. They say they really don't like this deal, but they have not come up with a plan B. If the U.S. were to withdraw and Iran were to restart its nuclear program, how the United States would respond? It, you know, it doesn't sound like when President Trump talks, he's really worried about a plan B. And we've got a clip from him this morning at the initial press availability with uh, President Macron of France, and uh, here's Donald Trump talking about Iran. Iran seems to be uh, behind everything where there is a problem. And you just have to take a look. You look at what's happening. You look at the fighters. Uh, Iran is is always there. And uh, we're not going to allow certain things to happen that are happening. And the Iran deal is a disaster. They're testing missiles. And what is that all about? You look at the ballistic missiles that they're going and testing. Uh, What kind of a deal is it where you're allowed to test missiles all over the place? Uh, What kind of a deal is it when you don't talk about Yemen and you don't talk about all of the other problems that we have with respect to Iran, especially uh, look at what they're doing in Iraq. You just take a look at what's happening in uh, any or virtually any place in the Middle East. Iran is behind it. So what kind of a deal is this where it wasn't even discussed? And I know John Kerry made the statement that he didn't want to discuss other things while he was making the deal. Despite all of the money that we gave them, he didn't want to discuss it because it was too complicated. That's not the way to do it because it was too complicated. So we made this terrible deal, but we'll be discussing it. The Iranians say they'll restart their nuclear program if the deal... We'll find out. You'll find out about that. It won't be so easy for them to restart. Mr. President, are you... They're not going to be restarting anything. They restart it, they're going to have big problems, bigger than they've ever had before. And you can mark it down. They restart their nuclear program, they will have bigger problems than they have ever had before. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. That's President Trump this morning with Emmanuel Macron right with him, a guy who's going to try to talk him into staying in the Iran nuclear deal. It doesn't sound like he wants even, you know, he wants to roll back Iran. This is like a rollback guy. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he thinks this, the Obama-era nuclear deal, deal does not go nearly far enough in countering Iran. And I think what Emmanuel Macron, who's visiting this week, he is the closest European ally, I would say, at the moment to Donald Trump. Theresa May is very focused in Britain on Brexit and has had many tensions with Donald Trump. Angela Merkel is also focused on her political future. She has trouble forming a coalition. She has really bristled with her relationship with Donald Trump. So Macron is the emissary. And he, what he and uh, the leaders of, of Britain and Germany are trying to do is negotiate these side deals to address many of the concerns that Donald Trump mentioned in that clip. So things like Iran being able to test ballistic missiles, things like Iran intervening in Syria um, and in Yemen. Also, just certain weaknesses in the Iran nuclear deal, such as the fact that there are expiration dates in many of the terms that restrict Iran's nuclear program, and also the fact that verification for international monitors isn't as strong as Donald Trump and many of his advisors would like it to be. So what they're trying to do is negotiate some side agreements. We don't know how intensive these side agreements will be, but I think the goal is to say, look, President Trump, we have addressed your concerns. You don't need to rip up this deal. We have all these side deals that will you know, make you feel better about all this. But there's no, I would say at this point, there's, we know they're working hard on it. There is no evidence as of yet that they have placated Donald Trump on this. And so we're reaching a deadline in the middle of May when Trump will face a decision. Does he continue to waive nuclear sanctions on Iran? If he doesn't, the United States will effectively have withdrawn from the deal. Well, is the biggest thing that the Iran deal has going for it right now the negotiations with North Korea? You can't exactly walk into negotiations with North Korea and rip up, at least in normal times, the contradiction would be so great that you cannot rip up a nuclear deal you've got with somebody else while you're trying to negotiate one with North Korea. The the Iran deal, you know, you'd think you would have to, you know, let it ride for a while. Yeah, there are two Iran-North Korea connections I, I find really interesting. One is, you're right, this point about how is North Korea going to perceive the Trump administration withdrawing from the nuclear deal with Iran? Are they going to say, oh, you know, our our agreement with the U.S. is worth just as much as the current president's whims, and it might change with administration. So there's a, a factor of U.S. credibility. The one caveat there, I would say, is North Korea has had decades of reasons to not trust the United States and vice versa. Um, both countries are very distrustful of one another. And so it's not like, you know, North Korea ha- believes the United States is so credible and suddenly they're going to have all their illusions dashed. On the other hand, um, I do think this will be one input among many in how they decide, how seriously they decide to take these negotiations. The second thing is, while the Iran and North Korea cases are different, so for example, Iran never had nuclear weapons. North Korea has an extremely advanced nuclear weapons program. I mean, they have, right now, they are on the verge of having nuclear uh, weapons that can be attached to intercontinental ballistic missiles that can reach the United States. This is a very far along program. But what will be very interesting to watch is, can the Trump administration negotiate that much better of a deal than the Obama administration negotiated with Iran? And if, if, for example, the goals are limited, that the Trump administration just tries to limit North Korea's ability to hit the United States with nuclear weapons, but leaves North Korea with much of its nuclear program intact, you know, how are they going to defend that when they've said they, they totally oppose this Obama-era agreement that actually left Iran with no nuclear weapons? So I think that's going to be a real hard um, challenge for the Trump administration in selling any agreement with North Korea if it falls short of what the Obama administration was able to achieve with Iran. 
Well, do you think that the uh, Trump administration, if they're inclined you know, to believe that denuclearization means they're going to give up all your nuclear weapons, uh, they're going to be deeply disappointed if they want to go big either way, which is the way Donald Trump talks about this. Uh, you know, we, we'll go big for you know denuclearization, or we'll go big for um, you know military action. Uh, they, they swing back towards military action if they're if you're an emboldened uh, Trump administration. That's the option left to you. Agreed. I think one. Um one of the very big downsides that we should be watching with these negotiations is, you know, I think there is potential for Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, who are very different characters and past U.S. and North Korean leaders, to potentially reach a big, you know, agreement. There is the possibility for that, and that would be quite an accomplishment. But I think the huge risk here is that when you go right in a few weeks to the president of the United States meeting with the president, the leader of North Korea, you can't go further up on the diplomatic ladder than that, right? So if it fails, if if um, North Korea is really not serious about giving up its nuclear weapons program to the degree that the Trump administration wants, what other recourse do you have diplomatically? And at that point, you have people like John Bolton, a national security advisor, right, you know, steps away from the president in the West Wing saying, we tried diplomacy. It failed. I've always been an advocate of using our military might. Um, and so I, that is a risk that we could actually, you know, and it's not just me saying this. There have also been people who have been watching um, the Korean negotiations for decades, like Victor Cha, who is an expert on Korea, who has said this might achieve historic peace or might bring us closer to war than we've been before. And I think that is a real um, downside of going straight to this high-level summit as opposed to doing lower-level negotiations as has been done in the past. I'm talking with Uri Friedman from The Atlantic. His latest article is Mike Pompeo's Secret Visit shows Trump wants to go big on North Korea. Uh, And Trump going big on North Korea with Mike Pompeo, he's not even the Secretary of State yet. Um, it shows that they, we, we don't really have a deep bench on North Korea right now. You just cited uh, someone who just left the administration, Victor Cha, and uh, there's not a lot of folks who have deep experience here. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was when uh, Mike Pompeo was initially nominated to be Secretary of State, he appeared on many of the Sunday, you know, political shows, and he said, "Listen, I've I spent this past weekend reading up on the history of North Korea negotiations. There's not a lot of reason to be optimistic." It's great that he's doing his homework, um, but you know the fact that he had to read up shows that he is he is coming to this kind of new. He he's not a North Korea expert. Um, he has not been participating in past negotiations, and there are a lot of people. Joe Yun, who is a State Department uh, official, who was basically our point person to North Korea in the United States. We have North Korean diplomats in New York, and he was a channel to them. He left the administration shortly before all this flurry of diplomatic activity. So there is not a lot of expertise in negotiating with North Korea. There are a lot of people who have worked on North Korea, you know, very intensely at the National Security Council and elsewhere. So there are some experts. But I think, you know, that what will be very interesting for Mike Pompeo is that he is someone who has the president's ear. So he will be a credible emissary for the Trump administration in a way Rex Tillerson was. And I think people will interpret what Mike Pompeo says as coming from the president as well. Uh, So he has that going for him. But I don't think he has a lot of familiarity with the various ways that North Korea has used negotiations in the past to kind of buy time and get concessions without really meaningfully dismantling its nuclear program. We'll see where that goes. Do you think that um, Mike Pompeo has changed his stripes on any other issue? I mean, we've been talking about um, him and the Iran nuclear deal, 
but he was, uh, you know, he stated a kind of different position on climate change. Or on, I mean, he hangs out with Islamophobes. He's uh, he's got problems uh, up and down. That's why you know lots of groups opposed him who were uh, Muslim groups, uh, environmental groups, human rights groups. All these people opposed his nomination. Are, are we what what Mike Pompeo do you think we'll see here? I think he um, he has pushed back pushed back against some of the characterizations that were made of him about what he said about um, Muslims in America uh, and tried to avoid that kind of rhetoric at the moment. But he did say all of those things in the past. And you know, one thing he mentioned after the Boston Marathon bombing, he got up in Congress and said, you know, any Muslims who Muslim leaders who don't speak out are complicit in these acts of terrorism. I mean, and that's that's hard, hard rhetoric to walk away from. You can't distance yourself so much from that. And so I think he is he is not said as much of that, certainly as CIA director, but as CIA director, you don't speak out publicly very often. Um, but I also think that's a factor in part of the fact that the terrorist threat has diminished a bit since the time he was in Congress when it was really the top issue in U.S. foreign policy, and he was much more outspoken on that. One interesting thing to watch will be what he does on Russia, um, because Mike Pompeo has been very outspoken in the need to counter Russian aggression. Um, the fact that Vladimir Putin is not our friend and he is meddling in the election and he is pushing the limits of the Western alliance, all of these things. Um, and he has, he has basically said we should push back against Russia wherever we find them. Now, that is not Donald Trump's position. And while the Trump administration has t- recently taken many, I would say, pretty aggressive actions against Russia uh, in response to its support for the Assad government in Syria, in response to the suspected Russian nerve agent attack on a former Russian spy in the UK, they have taken many actions. The president himself has shown himself to be very reluctant to really punish Vladimir Putin. And Mike Pompeo has two conflicting things here. He has his views on Russia, and he has what has been demonstrated as a loyalty to the president and a desire to not cross the president. And so what I'll be very interested in as Secretary of State is when he's a much more outspoken figure than he was as CIA director, will he speak out against Russia or will he hold his fire because he knows that's what the president is wont to do? And we don't know the answer to that yet. The What I will say is during his confirmation hearing, he was very aggressive on, you know, counting Russia and foreign policy. But when, whenever he was asked about the Russia investigations, when he was asked about the Trump, uh, president's own views on, on Russia, he declined to comment. And so he, he basically, as he, as he himself put it, avoided that minefield. Uri Friedman is with The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Mike Pompeo and U.S. foreign policy. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, we'll talk more about Emmanuel Macron and his state visit to the U.S. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's always strange gauging the personal relationships between global leaders, and President Trump puts more emphasis than normal on personal chemistry. One of the leaders the president really likes and isn't really close to him politically is France's Emmanuel Macron, who's here for a state visit. It's the first state visit of the Trump administration. Here's President Trump at the press availability this morning with President Macron. We have got a very special relationship. I don't imagine it's ever been closer in the history of our two countries, and that's a long and beautiful history. So uh, we will be talking about a lot of different subjects. We'll talk now about what's going on between the U.S. and France with Maxime Larivet. He's a senior research associate for the European Center, European Union Center at the University of Illinois, and he's a lecturer at the University of Miami. Thanks for joining us, Maxime. Good to talk with you. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could take us into Emmanuel Macron's head for a second and what he's trying to accomplish. He's, I think, got big ideas. He's trying to save liberalism as he knows it. He's trying to save the EU from itself, and he's trying to save uh, the transatlantic relationship with the U.S. Uh, Is he just taking a gigantic load of um, saving liberalism on on his shoulders? Yeah, it it seems like it. Um, You know, with Emmanuel Macron, we have to go back to uh, when he ran uh, for the presidential campaign, and and he had already proposed a uh, really big agenda uh, for himself and for the country and for Europe. Um, and this idea was, you know, that uh, France could be, uh, um, you know, greater and stronger with a stronger European Union. At that time, when he was campaigning, he was really, ex- he was expecting that uh, Chancellor Merkel will win the re-elections with a stronger mandate that she has. And at that point as well, um, you know, it was uh, uh, early on, but uh it was very unclear what would happen in the U.S. Today, he comes to uh, to Washington, and yes, absolutely, he is there to defend uh, the future and the values of the liberal order in the face of nationalism and populist, populist forces taking place in Europe and as well in the U.S. So that is pretty much his, his agenda. This leads him to some interesting positions. He's, he wants to be pretty tough on immigration and and things of that nature. And he sees, uh, you know, he acknowledges the issues that President Trump and other leaders have with immigration and wants to uh, address them. He thinks if you you get the liberal agenda to address these issues, you're going to save liberalism. That is absolutely correct. Um, You know, Emmanuel Macron, I think, is very realist in his domestic uh, economic and even foreign policy. Um, he is um, an acute reader and uh, he really understands history and, and where and what were the reasons and forces behind the development of the liberal order, you know, the one that was shaped by the United States uh, post-World War II and then defended until, uh, you know, uh, current President Trump sending mixed, uh, mixed signal regarding the future of the liberal order. But in, in his sense, right, um, and I think once again, I will go back to his campaign where he was very, um, you know, famous for using in the same time, joining two contradictory ideas together uh, in order to explain it. And so for him, uh, he, he realizes that 
embracing those core issues uh, that are really fueling nationalism or populism uh, they, and, and shied away, in fact, by the more um, you know, center-right or center-left parties to embrace those issues of migration, immigration, and, and, and you know, uh, economic uh, reforms and, and really try to bring them into his agenda in strengthening the liberal order and as well uh, all the values associated to it, then he thinks that he can continue and he can expand and respond to those nationalist and populist forces. And for instance, uh, right after the, the result of the Italian election, you know, I think he was very clear in saying, look, migration play a major role in the outcome of this uh, election, and we need to do more about this. And and in his uh, European uh you know, agenda is promoting for a stronger protections of the borders and all kind of um, issues that may seem a little bit far away from where it should fit, uh, where, where, you know, a center, a party should fit in. Is his position, though, a contradiction of the liberalism that we all know and love from the end of World War II, where we had refugee conventions and dealt compassionately with refugees. We didn't see immigration immigration as uh, something that was, you know, going was going to, you know, ruin our states and everything. It was like some, something that happened, and we should have some degree of compassion for it. Uh, if you just veer too much the way of the um, anti-immigration folks, the anti-refugee folks, then you're um, definitely just ditching the, the liberalism that uh, you think you're saving? You know, I, I think in his, in his reform, uh, in trying to defend a liberal order, he is addressing a core issue that has not been really well addressed by politicians and something that I kind of emerged in the academic literature, right? Um, in post-World War II, it was a moment of reconstruction for Europe and their labor force was required, and, and it was really the construction of a new type of order, right, in the middle of the, of the Cold War where you had two ideologies uh, confronting one another. Uh, in the 90s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, what was portrayed as the end of history in some ways, what democracy and, and capitalism had won, uh, then we stop reflecting on these issues. And I think Macron today realizes this and he says, look, uh, our world, the West in general, if we include European countries and the US and Canada, um, we are, they are very mature economies, mature democracies. And now uh, we see forces domestically, rightfully so, uh, forces that uh, express, you know, uh, the, the, the lack of comfort and the challenges that globalization uh, and the digital economy and climate change and all these issues uh, are really uh, putting a stress uh, our democracies and our economic model. So for him, it is the moment to say, look, we have that order. Now it is time to embrace those voices because they, they raise really important uh, points and then include them in order to identify solutions, in order to continue, you know, uh, these kind of cooperations and uh, continue the defense of that liberal order with really important values associated to, you know, democracy, pluralism, um, the, the centrality and the independence of judiciary, the centrality of press and all these things. 
I'm talking with Maxime Larive from the University of Illinois, and we're discussing Emmanuel Macron and his state visit to the U.S. and discussions with President Trump. Uh, Today, he, you know, took a crack at refocusing President Trump in the press conference on uh, the Iran issue. And we played earlier in the program this clip from President Trump where he really went off on Iran and, you know, said they're the source of all problems and you know, they've got missiles, they're, uh, they're influencing armed groups everywhere. And Emmanuel Macron got up and said, well, you know, here's our thing. We need another – we need to negotiate a missile deal with Iran. We sh- here's – he kind of refocused the, the kind of rage that Donald Trump had and put it into some context. If we want to see something happen with Iran and get their troops and uh, the Hezbollah troops out of Syria, we've got to uh, sit down with them and, and start negotiating. Uh, the, the, um, it does his – focused, diplomatic, solution-oriented agenda stand a chance with a guy who you know, seems to more more inclined to threaten Iran with military action than, than sit down and talk with it. Yeah, I think that that is the, the core question. Uh, for Emmanuel Macron, um, you know, and he, he, he prepared, in fact, his state visit by uh, inviting Chris Wallace of Fox News to the Elysee Palace, which is the presidential palace, and they cover a wide range of issues. Um, and one of them was Iran very early on. And President Macron was very clear in the sense that there are no plan B um, and there, there are no other options at this moment in order to deal with um, the nuclearization of Iran. Um, so that that is one one aspect. Now I, I think uh, the French diplomacy knows quite well uh, some of the contentious aspect of of that deal, um, and one of them obviously is is you know the sun, the sunset clause, for instance, and the fact that uh, post twenty twenty five there could be a progressive renuclear near renuclearization of Iran, and I think this is this is really a point of contention. Um, I think Macron wants to to make sure that uh, at least there is an extension of, um, of the, the, the Vienna Agreement, uh, where uh, President uh, Trump is supposed to recertify it by May 12. And I think that that is the priority at that point, maybe negotiating other kinds of deal, kind of directly or indirectly or bilateral deals on different uh, points could be an option. But the Iranian foreign minister recently uh, I think in his visit to, to Washington, said, look, we are now going to renegotiate the, the Iran deal. And that Iran deal uh, is far from being perfect, but, you know, it includes major players uh, such as China and Russia. Uh, it is not clear today, you know, three years after 2015, that these players will be willing to, to be, uh, you know, giving their voice and their support to such a multilateral deal. Uh, of of great powers in order to to refrain the the nuclearization of the region. Um, lastly, and we've just got like a minute left here. Um, the personal charm that Macron laid on Donald Trump when he visited uh, over the summer and watched the military parade, came home with him wanting a military parade. It seems to have worked. They've got he does have you know Donald Trump says this guy's my friend. I trust him. Yeah, it, it seems that uh, Macron has been a, a straight shooter. Uh, I think uh, they, 
they they understand themselves in the same way. Macron said that during the Fox News interview, they were both maverick. And I think Macron as well in this interview said, look, uh, I'm going to say it the way it is. And, and he was very clear when he invited uh, Russian President Putin in criticizing uh, the press, uh, uh, at least some of the, the press related to, to the government. And, and I think Macron has been di- very direct with, with Donald Trump uh, in, in the way he addressed himself. And as well, I think Macron, even though he defended his position uh, and sometimes has been a little bit strict on, on, on criticizing some points and some policies by Trump, he has refrained himself as well to uh, go in this traditional route of maybe undermining uh, the U.S. president. And, and I think this plays in his favor. Maxime Larive is a senior research associate for the European Union Center at the University of Illinois. He's a lecturer at the University of Miami. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good talking with you. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we learn about the effort to create an international convention for crimes against humanity. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. À distance, un halogène, anticipation, complication, célibataire exige éternel, instantané passion. Je ne sais pas si on fait bien ou si l'on fait vie. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's an effort moving forward to make a convention on crimes against humanity. And with us is one of the people spearheading it, Leila Sadat. She's a professor of law at Washington University. She's also a distinguished visitor at Northwestern University's Buffett Institute for Global Studies. And she's here talking about the effort, showing a film about the effort tonight at 5 p.m. And there's a panel discussion, too. Great to meet you. Thank you. Great to meet you, too. I think a lot of people probably have not heard of a convention on the crimes against humanity. Don't we already have an international criminal court that tries people on crimes against humanity? Why do we need a a convention? Um, That's a great question, uh, Jerome. And it's one of the reasons we made our film, which was to educate people about it. So after World War II, there was a trial that was held of the leading uh, figures of the Nazi regime. The Nuremberg uh, Trials. The Nuremberg Trials. And one of the crimes um, for which they were prosecuted were crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity at that time really were codified as what we now know as the crime of genocide because crimes against humanity were used to essentially prosecute what the Nazis had done to their own citizens, mostly the persecution of European Jews, political opponents, etc. And so after the war, we got something called the Genocide Convention, and we got Geneva Conventions, which um, allowed for the prosecution of war criminals, but we never got a crimes Against Humanity Convention, and it turns out that the Genocide Convention is very, very narrow. So even with the establishment of the International Criminal Court, 
you know, in 1998, we don't still have a mechanism to prosecute in national courts individuals who have perpetrated these crimes, which are actually the most ubiquitous crimes in the world today. They're being committed in Syria. They're being committed in um, at least allegations in Burma with respect to the Rohingya. They cover ethnic cleansing, sexual violence, torture, disappearance, apartheid, and many, many other crimes. So give me an example of how this would work. If we had a Convention on Crimes Against Humanity, would we have courts in Burma trying the perpetrators of the Rohingya genocide? Well, that would be ideal, right? Although it's unlikely to happen when the government is at least right now accused of either being ignorant of or facilitating the ethnic cleansing campaign. Instead, what you have is national courts all over the world. The idea is to empower all jurisdictions to be able to prosecute these crimes. If a perpetrator is found on the territory of a state and that um, alleged perpetrator, there's substantial evidence to believe they've committed that crime, that state will then have an international legal obligation to either bring that person to trial itself or to extradite to another state. And so the idea is you're trying to create this net through which the perpetrators can't uh, escape. So if someone from Burma were in the United States and they had committed a crime against humanity, uh, we would try them. Well, right now we can't because we don't have federal legislation and there's no treaty. So that's the whole we're trying to fix. In theory, exactly. Now, this would seem to be really unpopular with people (laughs) who run countries these days. Uh, The the rule of law seems to be out the window and populism and ignoring the rule of law is in. This is uh, something that's uh, got no shot these days. Well, so let's let's talk about sort of what's actually happening with the convention, and then we can talk about sort of the global climate, if you like. What's actually happening with the convention is after our work finished in 2010, in 2013, the United Nations International Law Commission picked up our project and began its own sort of separate codification effort. It's now completed a first draft, and it sent it to states at the United Nations General Assembly. And in the last meeting of the Sixth Committee in fall 2017, of the 55 governments that commented, 51 were positive or neutral. So that's actually an exceptional number of states that are very supportive of this effort to um, create a new global treaty on crimes against humanity. That said, we don't have the details yet. Obviously, the International Law Commission draft is fairly de minimis. It could become uh, more tendentious with time. But right now, we are seeing actually um, uh, a very positive response from most governments to the actual work ongoing with respect to this. That leaves aside sort of the, the bigger issue of the global climate and what's happening in terms of the rise of authoritarianism and attacks on human rights. And so they're sort of, they're sort of happening in tandem, which is sort of very interesting. Well, I mean, it seems like governments, though, would not want to do this right now. The U.S. government, of course, would would not want to do this. Well, the statement in the Sixth Committee by the United States was actually surprisingly positive. The United States took a fairly uh, positive and supportive. It's cautious. It's cautious. It's not committing itself. You have to remember, crimes against humanity are not just committed by states. They're also committed by non-state actors. So ISIS 
is kind of the poster child for why we would need a treaty like this. It is uh, sovereignty enhancing if you're going after non-state actors, rebel groups in the DRC, or um, ethnic cleansing by groups, or a group like ISIS, which is trying to create this caliphate. So states are surprisingly uh, positive. And of course, they don't see themselves as necessarily the target (laughs) of the convention. They see the non-state actors. When uh, Augusto Pinochet was – there was extradition on him. Uh, that was a big deal, right? And it, was, it seemed like that yeah. was like a, a moment where this principle was being implemented and people don't do that anymore. Well, there's some of that. So the Pinochet moment, as you said, you're absolutely right. It was astonishing. Um, Pinochet had been accused for so many years of these terrible crimes and all of a sudden seeks medical treatment in London. And this Spanish judge issues an arrest warrant uh, and eventually gets narrowed, narrowed down to torture. Right. That's why we need a convention, because there was a torture convention. Chile, the United Kingdom and Spain had all ratified the torture convention. And so when the British House of Lords had to decide whether Pinochet could be extradited to stand trial, uh, they used the torture convention. And that is why you do need an actual piece of law in order to be able to do these transnational prosecutions. Uh, Eventually, we got a good result in the case. He ended up going back to Chile and the Chilean government which was probably the right place for him to be tried, was the entity that eventually moved proceedings forward. But that happens very rarely, it seems now, and uh, that principle is uh, not popular. That's so popular. Yes and no. In Latin America, there are actually still a lot of very interesting cases. That's what we would call a universal jurisdiction case, although it doesn't have to be a case in a foreign jurisdiction. Uh, we had the Rios Mont trial in Guatemala for the Guatemalan genocide. We've just had some big cases come out of Argentina, still coming out of the dirty war from the 1970s. The Fujimori trial in Peru wasn't all that long ago. And there have been these so-called universal jurisdiction prosecution against some Syrians in Europe, uh, stemming from crimes committed during the conflict that began in 2011 in Syria. So there are a surprising number of these cases that are actually persisting around the world. And and the thing to remember, too, Jerome, and I like to remind when, when people get nervous about this, we really like to prosecute terrorism cases, hostage-taking, hijacking, terrorism. We use universal jurisdiction all the time in the United States to prosecute terrorism. And so you can't use it for the terrorism crimes if you're not willing to use it for torture and genocide and crimes against humanity. I'm talking with Leila Sadat. She's a distinguished visitor at Northwestern University's Buffett Institute for Global Studies. She's showing her film Never Again, Forging a Convention for Crimes Against Humanity at 5 p.m. There is a panel discussion afterward with uh, David Sheffer and Juliet Sorensen. Why did you want to go movie with this idea? I imagine that's not something law professors go out and do. <laughs> no, um, but this is the media age, you know. Um Part of it is, just as your questions have suggested, the idea is a complicated idea. It's a big idea. Um, There's only one of me and my six members of the steering committee. And to really be able to reach people all around the world about this, it was necessary to have something that could travel without me being 
you know, with it, so to speak. Um, And so it just felt like it was important not only to advocate for this particular treaty, but also to teach uh, students, um, leaders, everybody, really. It's it's, it's geared at sort of an educated lay audience, uh, very appropriate for high school or college students, to really educate people about international justice and why it matters. Um, Because you know, 72 years after Nuremberg, people have sort of forgotten why we did that. Why was it so important to have the Nuremberg trials to create the United Nations, to create the International Criminal Court in 1998? So the movie doesn't just focus on the convention. It focuses on the voice of the victims, because that's why we do this. And so we've selected victims from about six different countries who speak during the film and talk about why justice is important or why they didn't have justice, what it would mean to them to be able to see the perpetrator of the crime that victimized them in prison. Um, And we also talk about the International Criminal Court, right, and the movement to create a system of global justice, because it seems nowadays um, we've forgotten why we did Nuremberg. And I think it's important to remind people that these are important values, that they are enshrined in the United Nations Charter, which is, after all, the constitution of the international legal order. Where do you see the most resistance to this idea of a convention on crimes against humanity coming from? Oh, that's a great um, that's a great question. I, I think there will be, going back to your earlier point, there will be some states that will be very resistant. And I right now, as I said, the United States is surprisingly, in my view, positive. I think it is something we should be positive about because presumably the United States doesn't intend to commit these crimes. I think we'll see less positivity from China, uh, which is a very sovereigntist approach to international law, and this goes to the core of sovereign function. Um, I don't expect the Russian Federation to come out and embrace it immediately, although hopefully they can be convinced. So I think there will be some states that will see this as a potential incursion into their sovereignty, uh, whether that will cause them to oppose it or just not to ratify it is a different question, because, of course, they can always exercise their sovereignty by not ratifying. Um, And then you have to actually convince experts. That's one of the hardest groups, because we lived without this treaty for so long that when we started this movement, many of the experts were like, well, we have the ICC. We have the Genocide Convention. And when you would suggest that those were insufficient, it was a little hard to overcome that. And so we actually wanted to document it. Here are the statistics. Here are the cases. Here are the situations. Does this thing fix the ICC? Because everyone talks about it not going so great. Uh, There is no extradition. It just doesn't seem to be going so great. Would this thing make it better? Uh, This isn't directed really towards the ICC per se, but it would make it better. It would make the system of global justice better by reinforcing the ICC at the national level. So you and I were talking before about Sharif Basuni, right, the father of international criminal law. And what he would have said is this is a horizontal mechanism. This is about states cooperating with each other to reinforce the vertical mechanism in the ICC. The reason the ICC struggles is it has to depend on states for cooperation. And states don't always want to cooperate with each other. But there are lots of jurisdictions that actually take their responsibilities to try or extradite international criminals quite seriously, including the United States. 
States, actually. The United States does. We've had some genocide cases. We've had torture cases. We just don't have any crimes against humanity legislation. So really, this is a treaty aimed at the Justice Department, not at the state or the Defense Department in that sense. This is about mutual legal assistance and interstate cooperation for the prosecution of international crimes. I noticed that on the U.S. level, uh, Senator Durbin reintroduced a bill called Crimes Against Humanity Legislation in the U.S. Congress to get some crimes against humanity legislation on the books. Uh, What would that do? Absolutely. So, and I think um, David Sheffer, who's going to be one of the panelists, can actually speak to that. That legislation basically gives federal courts jurisdiction, federal prosecutors jurisdiction. If a perpetrator has come to the United States, we define the crime, we define the penalty, and we say that individual can be prosecuted even if the crime was committed outside the United States and the individual is not a U.S. national. And that is basically the Pinochet case. So it gives us our own jurisdictional nexus to those kind of crimes. And since the United States has traditionally been thought of as as a a country to which immigrants come, I know there's some change in in U.S. policy, but we have had a healthy immigration. Um, Obviously, not everybody comes necessarily um, from the best background. And you have individuals who actually are quite wealthy, who have looted their own countries, who have ill-gotten gains. And so they come to spend their money where it's nicer like the United States, and we want the ability to to prosecute those people. Well, it'll be very interesting to uh, see how this goes, and I'll keep my eye on the Convention for Crimes Against Humanity. The film Never Again, Forging a Convention for Crimes Against Humanity, is showing at 5 p.m. 6 p.m., there will be a panel discussion with uh, David Sheffer and Juliet Sorensen, and it's taking place at Northwestern's Black Museum of Art. It's been terrific to meet you, Leila Sadat. Good luck with the convention. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you, too. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The term people of color is invoked a lot these days, especially in cases of police brutality, Donald Trump era, and lots of different circumstances these days. But does the term capture the nuances of racism between non-white racial groups? How do people of color who aren't black treat black people? We want to discuss anti-black racism next week, and we want to hear from people like you. Uh, Call the Worldview hotline at 312-948-4880 and share your story of racism that's not captured in the term people of color. And uh, let us know about circumstances, whether you're on the receiving end of anti-black racism or have seen it in action. We'd like to hear about specific circumstances. 312-948-4880. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.